Well, good morning, Grumlaw. We are so glad that all of you watching decided to join us here today, whether you're laying in bed by yourself, sitting in your living room next to your girl, next to your man, or maybe you're sitting with a handful of other people for Grumlaw at home. Shout out to all of our Grumlaw at home peeps. So excited what God is doing through Grumlaw at home. Uh, Last week, my wife and I had like an absolute blast. We had this moment, in fact, once like everybody actually left our house, we're like, that was like really good, right? Like we need this community right now. So I'm telling you, if you're not taking advantage of Grumlaw at home, make sure that you sign up. You are missing out. Uh, we do not take it for granted that you decided to join us here today, especially if this is your first time. Uh, honestly, thank you for giving Grumlaw a shot. Uh, this is also a really, really great week for you to be joining us because today we're actually starting a brand new series titled Campfire Stories. It's always good when you can catch us right at the beginning of a series because, well, it's it's August and And nothing says really like summer nights in Michigan, like sitting around a campfire and sharing some stories, sharing some memories with families uh, and friends. Uh, Some of my fondest memories actually as a child uh, were from my youth. It took place about two hours north of here, a place that a lot of you have actually heard of before called Spring Hill camps. And in Spring Hill, it's honestly one of the best summer camps on the entire planet. And there's a lot of good things that draw people to Spring Hill, incredible activities, awesome leaders. But uh, what I remember most from my childhood at Spring Hill was the end of the evenings when, when we and everybody in our area would gather around a campfire. You'd have like 50 other people your age, all your gender. So picture like 50 10-year-old boys marching around a campfire, singing campfire songs, going through these ridiculous chants. And then it would always wrap up at the end of the evening where we'd all sit down on these logs around the campfire and listen as one of our leaders told us a story from this book that we call the Bible. It it, it was incredible how the glow of a fire and the quietness of the night can can suddenly cause like 50 10-year-olds to all pay attention. Now, now some of you, you might not know this, uh, but Jesus, as, as in God in the flesh Jesus, during his time on earth, he actually told a lot of stories. And, and this might actually come as a surprise to you, but, but a lot of the stories that he told, they were actually made up, as in completely made up, as in fabricated. Now, we traditionally refer to these stories that Jesus told as, as parables. Uh, a parable is a simple, made-up story told to make a clear, honest point. So while the story itself is made up, the point that he was making, very, very intentional. Jesus would tell these stories in order to get people to think about certain topics or certain subjects in a new way. Because most of us, whether we've realized it or not, we learn best the information sticks more when there's a story or an illustration attached to the lesson. Some of the teachers, in fact, that you look back on most fondly in grade school, high school, or even college, they were the teachers, they were the professors that made the material come to life. You probably don't have fond memories or, frankly, memories at all of those teachers who just kind of like vomited all the information on you. Even worse, you likely don't remember much of what they even taught you because without stories, without illustrations, the information just kind of goes in one ear and, and out the other. Stories are what makes the information stick. One of my favorite teachers was my fifth grade teacher. His name was Mr. Schindler. Uh, And the reason that I I retain, even to present day, so much of of what he taught us, what he taught the classroom, is, again, because he was an incredible storyteller. He always was adding illustrations into the lessons. I I think elementary school teachers uh, have a really, really hard job because not only are they trying to keep a bunch of little kids under control, they're having to teach on, like, all these different kinds of of subjects. And one of the really unique things that Mr. Schindler did was with every one of his fifth grade classes, 
classes. We would literally build a canoe throughout the school year as a class, obviously under his supervision, but two, three kids at a time for about 10 minutes at a time would go over and like work a little bit on the canoe. And he promised us that at the end of the year, we'd auction it off, not auction it off, we'd raffle it off. And one of the kids would actually get to take the canoe home. I, I unfortunately did not win the canoe that year. I was definitely bummed out about that. But there in the corner sat this massive illustration. And he was constantly referencing the canoe. He was constantly adapting stories of boating, fishing, and even carpentry into all these different lessons on different subjects. It made the material come to life. And wouldn't you know it, Jesus, he knew this. I mean, sure, he could have just kind of information dumped everything on his disciples and his followers and people with an earshot. I mean, after all, he is the son of God. He's all wise. He's all knowing. But, but he was smart enough to know that, that it wouldn't stick. He, he was smart enough to know that if he could just get people to think about these topics from a slightly different angle, it, it might just take root rather than being something that would quickly be dismissed. Jesus was, was a master storyteller. It, it was one of the primary reasons that everywhere he went that these massive crowds would follow him. People wanted to hear the words that exited Jesus' mouth. He was such a compelling communicator, such an incredible storyteller. The, the, the reason that so many of us have such fond memories of sitting around a campfire, it's obviously not because of the fire itself. It's because of the conversation and, and the stories that circulate around the flames. And so over these next five weeks, we're going to take a look at some, certainly not all, but some of the stories that Jesus told during his time on earth. And what I find so interesting, so fascinating, is that these stories seem to be every bit as applicable today as they were thousands of years ago when Jesus was originally sharing them. So before we dive into some of these stories, before we dive kind of here into week number one, into this parable, this story, uh, I'd love to pray for us right now. So allow me to do that now. God, uh, we thank you for, for what you are going to teach us through these, these stories, these parables. We thank you for just the applicability of them all these years later. Uh, we thank you that you are a God that is, yes, one, a God of truth, but you are also, yes, a God who is full of grace. And so I just pray, God, that whatever it is that you're trying to say to us today, we'd be open to that, uh, and we'd be willing to step into that in obedience. And so your name we pray. Amen. Now, today, as we kind of kick this series off, we're going to be taking a look at what is traditionally referred to as the story of the evil farmers. Kind of sounds a little bit ominous. Now, I'm going to kind of warn you right here on the front end. This is a story that kind of tends to make people, by the end of it, once you realize where Jesus is going, a bit uncomfortable. Like a lot of the stories, like a lot of the parables that Jesus told, that this one causes you to maybe get a little bit squirmy, feel maybe a little bit convicted, it forces you to look inward and have some serious self-examination. This parable, like all of the stories that Jesus would tell, it speaks truth. And as every single one of us have experienced countless times throughout our lives, the truth often makes us uncomfortable. But remember, as we listen to this story and others throughout this story, remember that the heart of Jesus is, yes, one of truth, but also grace. That in those moments when the truth leaves us feeling exposed or vulnerable or even embarrassed, his grace comes swooping in right behind, reminding us of the immense love that he has for every single one of us. Nobody in the history of the world has been able to capture that balance of grace and truth like Jesus. 
Jesus wants to refine us, to, to expose us to truth, because it's in that special place of truth and grace that we become better husbands, better wives, better parents, friends, bosses, neighbors. We, we become more like Christ. And so if you want to follow along today, uh, we're going to be jumping. This parable, this story is told to us in Luke chapter 20. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with this book that we call the Bible, uh, Luke, we find it right at the beginning of the New Testament, which is kind of the second half of the Bible. It's one of the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. And, and one of the reasons that I really have an appreciation for, for Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Luke, is that he didn't just believe things for the sake of belief. In fact, Luke was actually a doctor, so it was kind of built into his DNA that he needed proof. He needed the evidence. And he was hearing all these crazy things about this guy who went by the name of Jesus. And he actually dedicated the latter part of his life to thoroughly investigating the events surrounding the life of Jesus. And fortunately for all of us, he recorded those findings for us in this document that is titled Luke. It's also important to give you a little bit of context as to why Jesus is about to tell this very specific story. So see, at this point in Jesus' life, it's starting to approach the time where the religious leaders in particular, that they're really starting to get irritated with Jesus. I mean, they never really liked him because he was how he was constantly challenging them and their behavior, but we've officially entered kind of the time frame where, where they're actively putting plans together to arrest him and hopefully in the very near future have him killed. So, so everything that he says, everything that he does is being very closely watched. In fact, they're frequently asking him questions that, that they're hoping that he'll answer in such a way that it'll actually give them a reason to arrest him. And one of these questions that they keep going back to is, hey, Jesus, where do you get the authority? Where do you get the authority to perform miracles? Where do you get this authority to cast out demons? But most importantly, where do you get the authority to forgive sins? It was their way of asking Jesus, who do you think you are? And Jesus, being smart enough to know that even if he just flat out told them the answer, they wouldn't believe him, he instead decides to tell a story. And it's the one that we're going to be taking a look at here today. Again, we find it in Luke chapter 20, specifically verse 9 is where it picks up. It says, Jesus turned to the people again and he told them this story. A man planted a vineyard and he leased it to tenant farmers and he moved to another country to live for several years. Jesus right here, as he would so often do in parables, he'd start out with something that was really, really familiar to the audience. In this particular case, the practice of a rich man who owned a lot of land, and then they would go and lease that land to tenant farmers. And as so often happens in these parables, these situations are actually still pretty commonplace in present day. In fact, do we have any farmers watching right now? If you're a farmer, go ahead and type that over there in the comments. Maybe you're not a farmer. Maybe you had a grandparent who was a farmer. I know it's not probably like an overwhelming number of you who are farmers, so we're going to give you a quick lesson here in farming. I know, invigorating stuff. What you're probably hoping for is you tuned into Grumlaw today. Now, farmers, some of you might not know this, they rarely own all of the land that they farm. 
Land has always been, and still to this day, is, is pretty expensive. In fact, farmable land, that land that's free of trees and good soil and ready to be turned and planted, that's typically going to sell for about 50% more than like a heavily wooded piece of property. And if you really want to make a significant profit farming, you need like thousands upon thousands of acres. And, and so it's for this reason that people with a lot of money will often buy these big chunks of land because it's an extremely safe investment, especially if it happens to be farmable. But guess what? As it turns out, rich people, they don't love farming. So they typically will lease the land that they own out to farmers who don't have the money to buy the land themselves so that they can farm it and make money on the crops that they plant and they harvest. Now, now oftentimes the landowner, they won't even set foot on the property for literally years at a time. It's the farmer that really looks after the land and maintains it. I know, again, invigorating stuff. But, but this is precisely what would happen so long ago. The thousands of years ago, rich, rich people would buy these, these huge chunks of land and then they lease it out to farmers who would then plant, in most cases, in Jesus' time, these massive vineyards. The only big difference between back then and now is that rather than money being the medium that they would exchange for the property, but back then, wine would actually be the form of payment to the landowner. And what we know from the history books is that this would commonly be a source of conflict between the farmer and the landowner. Tensions would frequently arise about how much wine to hand over. What was a fair price to use their land? Jesus continues. He says, at the time of the grape harvest... He sent, the landowner, one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So th this is kind of the point of the story where it kind of goes in like a, a weird kind of left-turn direction. As mentioned, Jesus, again, he'd usually begin these stories with something really, really familiar. But, but then he would kind of throw in these curveballs. And I'm telling you, it was so intentional. It would cause like the entire crowd to lean in. It would cause this sort of collective pause, this collective, wait, what in the heck did Jesus just say type moments? I actually employ this tactic regularly when I'm reading a book to my daughter. She loves having books read to her. And so she'll go grab one off the shelf. And in the moment, I'm like, this book's kind of boring. I don't think she's going to like hang on for the entire time. And so I'll try to coerce her into a different book. But she's insistent. She's like, no, Daddy, I want you to read this, this book. And so I'm like, okay, here we go. And so when you know it, about 50% through the book, you know, she's looking around. She's kind of gazing at other books that she wished she would have picked up. And I'm like, okay, I got to get her back. And so I'll have these moments where, you know, maybe I'm reading about a little green frog. And then I'm like, all of a sudden, an alligator emerged from the depths and ripped the frog's legs off. And she's looking at it like, wait, what? Is that really in there? Flipping the page, seeing if there's like a picture to describe that. And then she'll look at me. She's like, daddy, is that really what it says? I'm like, ah, no, honey. But even though it's totally made up, she's like, she's back. She's suddenly reading again. She, she wants to hear what happens next. And so the crowd with Jesus, they're leaning in wondering what he's going to say next. It says, so the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. I mean, one guy getting beat up and sent away, that, that's odd. But, but now three servants have had the living tar beaten out of them and have all been sent away empty-handed. And Jesus, being this master storyteller that he is, he knew that he had everybody engaged. He knew everyone listening was hooked, waiting to hear what was going to happen next. 
It's kind of like those annoying ads. I don't know if you've had these moments or maybe this is just a me thing where I'm like, I've read an article, you know, I've read the entire article or I'm on social media and I've scrolled down and, and there's this clickbait at the bottom. And I know it's clickbait, but every once in a while, they kind of grab my attention. It's like, you thought it was safe to swim in the Great Lakes, bet you didn't account for this. And I'm like, I swim in the Great Lakes. I, I wonder if I have accounted for this. And again, most of the time I scroll past, but every once in a while, I'm like, this is kind of interesting. I got a couple minutes to kill, and I'll click on it. And every single time, it's the same thing. It's like some hundred slide slideshow. You're just trying to get to that one piece of information. And by the time you're about halfway through and you've already burned up a half an hour, you're like, what in the heck am I doing with my life right now? And you just like, get the heck out of there. Jesus had them hooked. That There was something there that they wanted to know more. What? Will I do, the owner asked himself. I know. He came up with a brilliant solution. I'll send my cherished son. Surely, I mean surely, if I send my kid, they will respect him. Now, I got to confess to you, every single time that I've read this parable, every single time I've read this story, even as a, as a middle schooler, I, I have thought the exact same thing. This seems risky right? Like, this seems really risky. I mean, guy, I mean, they have beaten the tar out of every other person that you have sent. Don't, don't you have at least maybe a little bit of concern for your kid? Maybe you should go with them. I mean, have you completely lost your mind? I mean, at best, it seems like we're talking about a 50-50 chance. And I'm just saying as a dad, 50-50 is not good enough when it comes to my kids. I need like 99.9%. It says, but when, but when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and they murdered him. It's like, what? I, I know maybe the, the, the possibility of beating him up, but, but, but killing him? And, and hey, landowner dad, maybe you should have thought this through a little bit better. I mean, didn't this seem pretty much to fall right in character with, with what they had previously displayed? Are you out of your mind? Why would you have ever sent your son there? And, and it so often happens when, when you read these, these parables that Jesus told, it kind of elicits emotion. In, in this case, if you've been kind of like paying attention here, right, you're kind of angry. You, you want some justice against these farmers. Now, a little bit, of, again, context here helps this to come to life even more. Back at this point in history, history, property would go to anyone who was in possession of it when the owner died. And, and so what these likely, the, these farmers thought as, as, as the, the son was approaching the, the land, they probably thought to themselves, oh, the, the father, the landowner, he's probably died. That's why his son is coming right now. And so they figured, hey, if we kill this guy, if we get rid of the son, then this property, this land is ours. Not realizing that actually the father was alive and well. So at this point, Jesus, he turns to the crowd and he asks him a question, a question that could be asked of all of us as well. He says, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? And, and even if you don't really want to say it out loud, I, I know what you're thinking. It, it's what every single one of us are thinking right now. We're all thinking, he's going to kill him, right? Like, I mean, he's definitely going to kill these guys for killing his son. Jesus says, I'll tell you, he'll come. And he will kill those farmers, and he will lease the vineyards to others. 
to which we all kind of like at this point collectively nod our heads and think, yeah, that, that sounds right. That, that, that is surely what they deserve. This is kind of an interesting story, right? <laughs> it's kind of an odd story. And if you grew up in church like I did, it's probably not one that was taught to you in Sunday school. See, see, Sunday school teachers tended to lean more into the, like, Jesus loves the little children, and a whole lot less on the landowners killed all the evil farmers because of their pride and arrogance. Doesn't, like, have the same ring. But, but if you're at least a little familiar with the story of Jesus, you're likely already connecting the dots as to what Jesus was really talking about here. It's incredible all the foreshadowing that's actually taking place in this story. The crowd in response to this says, How terrible, how terrible that such a thing should ever happen. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen. And as I was preparing this message, as I was reading these words, I don't know why, but it, this this this. This thought just struck me like, what what was Jesus' reaction to that statement? What what were his nonverbals in that split second? I mean, did did he smirk? Was there a quick grin? Did he he close his eyes for a second and just kind of look down? Did did, did he perhaps in this moment maybe, maybe cry a little bit? Did he shed a tear? How terrible that such a thing should ever happen. Because in fact, it was happening. See, the story that Jesus was telling wasn't some hypothetical. It was presently being acted out, and the riveting, terrible, heart-wrenching conclusion would soon play out just as Jesus had said. See, God, for hundreds, even, even thousands of years, he'd sent prophets and, and messengers. And, and all too frequently, the people of this world, and even more shameful, oftentimes religious people would, would harass and frustrate and, and even kill the people that God had sent. And, and then in the most loving act that this world has ever seen and ever will see, God thinks to himself, well, they won't respect my prophets or my messengers. Maybe, maybe they'll respect my son. It's like, God, that seems risky. He devises a way to win us back by sending his one and his only son to earth. And again, even those of you who didn't grow up going to church, you know how the story of Jesus ends. Rather than respect, rather than than people embracing him, we turn our back on him. They have him killed. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen. But it did. That, that, that terrible thing happened about 2,000 years ago. Wraps up by saying the teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they figured it out. They realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. 
the, the truth exposed them. And as every single one of us have experienced, it was embarrassing. It was uncomfortable. And see, when we're in these moments, when, when, when truth is staring at us in the face, every single one of us, we all, we have a decision to make. I, I can reject my pride, that which comes natural to me, and accept and embrace truth, or I can accept and coddle and embrace my pride and reject truth. See, it's so easy to look at the religious elite of Jesus' day with such, with such shock and, and such disgust, wondering how they could have put the Son of God to death for crimes that he never committed. But, but that is so nearsighted. We, we forget that it was our sin, your sin, my sin that put Jesus on that cross. Every single one of us, like those religious leaders, we have rejected Jesus. We're the wicked farmers. This is a story about us. The, the only thing that now stands between some of us and others is Jesus. That, that, that some of us watching this morning, we, we've thrown aside our pride. As hard as it is that is to do, we, we've admitted that, yes, we are sinners who are in need of a Savior. And, and we have accepted, we have embraced Jesus. We've swallowed that hard pill that we cannot get it together on our own. And we have fallen at the feet at the cross of Jesus. We have acknowledged the great love that God has for every single one of us. The great lengths that he has gone to in order to win us back, not pay us back, but win us back to him. Because by Jesus' own words, by his own admission, he admits that we deserve to be killed. We deserve to be destroyed by the landowner. But the landowner did the most loving, selfless, grace-filled thing imaginable when he sent his son. And maybe you, you who are literally watching right now, you've had all these rebuttals, you've had all these reasons why, why you're not going to follow Jesus, why you're not going to put your faith in him and at a certain point, it's like, okay, am I just going to reject my pride or am I going to continue to accept it? Am I going to continue to coddle it? Am I going to continue to reject truth or, or am I going to accept truth? Throw on your knees, throw aside your pride, admit that you are a sinner who cannot get it together on your own accord and accept Jesus. Y'all, the God of the universe made the standard so simple. He said the way that you would be declared righteous, which is just a fancy way of saying the way that you get that right standing back with him, it's not based on what you've done. It's not based on your previous actions. It's not based on where you come from. No, 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 it's, it's, it's so much simpler than that. It's, it's faith, it's trust, it's belief, synonymous terms. Do you believe that God sent his one and his only son down to earth for your sins, for my sins, for our sins, that he took the weight of the sin of the world, the wrath of God on his shoulders so that you might have the opportunity to not experience that? That he took your place on that cross, but that three days later, <laughs> he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And we're told it's that simple. It's that, that, that testimony of faith. It's that belief in Jesus. And it literally could be as simple as you right now, wherever you're at, closing your eyes and saying, God, I know that I am a sinner. 
I know that I cannot get it together on my own. And so I submit my life to you. I invite you into every aspect of my life. From this day forward, I'm gonna live for you. And again, make no mistake about it, it's not a prayer that gets you into heaven. It's that faith, it's that trust. As I wrap this thing up here this morning, I I wanna pose a question to everyone who's sitting here, who's watching right now, who would already call themselves a a Christian. And so if if you're honestly, you're not a Christian, you can kind of just ignore this part of the talk. I'll tell you, this is meant to be a bit of a prying, make you uncomfortable type question. It's not totally dissimilar to the question that we asked actually last week. Does your life, does your life show that you have accepted or rejected Jesus? Now, what, what do your words say? What does your life show? And I ask this question because there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians, yet what is seen in their life does not line up with the character of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus goes well beyond being a nice person. I know plenty of nice people who do not have a relationship with Jesus. Do not forget that the very people that ended up having Jesus killed, their lives were full of religious activities. That they went to church not just on Sundays, but like every day of the week. They prayed for all to see. They knew the scriptures better than anyone. But yet their actions and their lives conveyed a much different story. It was a lot of talk without much walk. It was a lot of speaking without much doing. And again, don't get this confused. Make no mistake about it. It is through faith and faith alone that we get that right standing back with God. But whether we truly believe and have truly embraced the teachings of Jesus is revealed by how we live our lives. A reckless obedience to whatever and wherever Jesus leads. An embracing of truth, even when it costs you something. Especially when it costs you something. And so right now, before the band comes up, before we sing, before we praise the name that is above all names, we're literally gonna give you just one minute to really reflect on that question. And I would again, I challenge you, just be honest with you. This isn't between you and anybody else. This is between you and God. And again, he already knows the answer. Will you answer this question? Does your life show that you have accepted or rejected Jesus? And I would warn you, please don't be so quick to say, well, well, of course I have accepted. Let me ask a couple other probing questions before we get into this minute. Are you regularly saying yes to things that, that other people think that you are nuts to saying yes to? Do you regularly, sacrificially give your your, your talents, your time, and your treasure away? Do do you sacrificially put put the needs of others ahead of your own? Very simply, does your life look drastically different from people who do not call themselves followers of Jesus? Jesus. Let me give you just a very, very practical example of this. And this is not meant to be passive aggressive. And I'm, I'm pleading with you, please don't take this the wrong way. But a couple of weeks ago, we, we did this event. 
uh, up in Flint called Clean and Green in partnership with, with one of our ministry partners called Franklin Avenue Mission who are doing amazing things on the northeast side of Flint. And, and once a year, literally once a year, we, we ask the entire collective Grumlaw community to come together and, and serve the people in Flint. Help to mow grass and trim trees and just clean up these vacant and abandoned lots. And for weeks, we promote this thing. We, we beg you on Sunday mornings to sign up for it. We put it out on social media. We send you emails about it. I mean, there's no way you could have possibly missed it. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we held that event. We, we had about 30 people show up to this thing. And, and honestly, that was good. I mean, that, that, that's better than, than what it's been actually in a lot of different times when we've asked people to serve. It's actually heading in a, in a positive direction. But y'all, before the, this whole COVID thing went down, we were seeing about 500 people show up in person every single Sunday. 30 people were willing to sacrifice four hours on a Saturday to come serve people when it was of no benefit to them. Now, again, I'm not trying to guilt trip people into anything. And, and I had several people reach out to me. Hey, I have plans that day. We're going to the lake that day. Y'all, as followers of Jesus, not believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, you regularly sacrifice things that are best for you, that are what you want, to recklessly and selflessly serve others, even if it means you don't get to go to the lake, even if, even if it means that you have to alter your plans. That is at the heart of following Jesus, not just believing in him, but truly following him. So, so one minute right now, I want you to truly wrestle this question to the ground. Does your life show that you have accepted or rejected Jesus? Jesus.